it falls to me to speak this morning on really calling the church to lives of service and to lives of good deeds and to lives of pouring ourselves out in good works both for our world and especially for the church. And to do that, I want to invite you to look at Galatians chapter 6, and we're just going to be looking at one verse. Uh, the one verse is really a coy way of saying we'll be serving the whole book of Galatians this morning. But we're going to do that by one verse to keep things manageable. And that one verse is Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. And I'll read you the paragraph that runs up to that verse. Galatians chapter 6, verse 6, through chapter 6, verse 10. So let me read you God's word. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And here's our verse. So then... As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Father, we come before you, and you have encouraged my heart many times this week with the reality of sacrificial service that exists in the saints at Emmanuel. I pray that as I preach, that that encouragement would be conveyed to the brothers and sisters I love. Lord, you have encouraged my heart with the gospel, and I pray that as I preach, that encouragement would come across with clarity and conviction and really with an impartation of grace and encouragement to my brothers and sisters as we think about your word. Lord, we pray this in spite of our weakness that you'd come now and move in your power. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This week, as our staff uh, made their final preparations for this morning's Love Your Neighbor uh, Ministry Fair, I couldn't help but be encouraged over and over and over again. All of the information, the ministry ideas, the sign-up sheets, the booths were being set up and prepared. I could not help but stand in awe of God uh, because it's God who said in the book of Titus, that our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself, a people, for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. And uh, my calling this morning as I prepare to preach is not to get Emmanuel to do a few good works. This is not uh, an opportunity for me to try to get water from a rock. Uh, rather, it's just a, a matter of awe that God has done so many things in your midst. I'll just give you one recent example. A couple of Fridays ago, uh, we had a windstorm that wasn't lasting for 20 minutes, but all day, nearly 80 mile an hour, wind gusts uh, were blowing across our city. 
the city tells us it was the third largest weather event in terms of power uh, going out uh, in the time I've been in Louisville since 2020. Third largest shutdown of the city, 80,000 people or so without power, uh, trees down, some lives even lost. And in the midst of all of this, a number of our own members uh, being without power and needing to scramble to figure out what to do with their food or where they were going to sleep or how they're going to get the water out of their basement. In the midst of all this, we just watched a horde of people spontaneously move into each other's lives. No sermon, no special direction, no nothing. Just the people of God moving to care for one another, to provide a place to stay for one another, to provide meals for one another, and to really do good to one another. To live out what we also read in the book of Titus, let our people be ready for urgent needs. Lord, our people were ready to meet those urgent needs. But, but we thought as a staff, you know, we should probably put something in an email. We should probably put something out there that just says, hey, here's a mercy request form. Maybe there's some people falling through the cracks. Maybe there's some people who aren't in a small group. Maybe there's some people who don't know anyone. Maybe there's some people who aren't getting the help they need. So we'll put an email out that just says, hey, uh, if you have any needs, here's a form to fill out and our deacons will make sure that those needs get met. So we sent the email out. And as I was uh, preparing this sermon, I thought, I wonder what kind of response we got to that email. And I had a hunch what the answer was going to be, but I, I wanted to find out for sure. So I walked downstairs to Scott Stringer, our lead deacon's office, and I said, hey, how many uh, needs requests did we get after the storm? And he said, none. But we did get 12 emails offering to help if anyone did have needs. And that is just so encouraging, to see the body take care of itself and to build each other up in love and to provide for one another's needs. So my goal this morning is not to start something, but to encourage what God is clearly already doing in your souls. My prayer isn't, Lord, make them loving. It's much more like Philippians 1.9. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. So my sermon this morning, or my goal this morning, is to encourage us as we try to make every opportunity to serve all people, but especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's my goal. And the reason it's my goal is because it's clearly what the passage in front of us says. The passage in front of us says, just as clearly as can be said, that we're to take every opportunity to do good to all men, but especially our fellow Christians, those who are of the household of faith. And so that's my goal this morning, that Emmanuel Baptist Church would do good whenever they can, to whomever they can, but especially to one another. Now I wanna point out three ways this text encourages us. I wanna point out three ways this text encourages us in our service to the world and to the church. And the first way is this text provides us motivation from the gospel. It provides motivation from the gospel. The second thing this text provides is wisdom from the word. There's always questions, how much should I serve? What should I do? This text provides, in these short few words, remarkable wisdom from the word. And then lastly, it also shows us the scope and the priority that we're to give in our 
service. It gives us a scope of labor, what we're supposed to be doing, and also a focus, a prioritization, which is another kind of wisdom in how we serve the world and the church around us. So let's begin with motivation. I'm not gonna lie, this will be at least half the sermon. First point's gonna dominate. And, and the reason, and, and I'm only gonna be looking at two words, but those two words are like the bumper on a semi-truck. Behind the bumper on a semi-truck is all kinds of weight and all kinds of substance. And this is what we find as we come into these, this verse. You'll notice the Apostle Paul says, so then. Those are the two words I'm talking about. So then. Let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. What we're being told here is that this command, let us do good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith, is an implication. It's an application. It's coming out of something else. There's a so then that goes before it. This isn't just a general call to do-gooding. This isn't just sort of a general call to love your neighbor. You can get those anywhere, in any religion and anywhere in the world. There's a call to love your neighbor, love your neighbor and love especially people who are like you. That, that rings out everywhere in the world. But this so then tells us that this is an implication of something bigger. And I wanna show you that really what's flowing out is that the call to do good comes out of the immediate context and the broader context of Galatians. And the immediate context is a reminder of a principle. We should do good as we have every opportunity to all men, especially those of the household of faith, because of a particular principle. And that principle you will find, if you'll just look right up in verse seven, it's this, whatever one, whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Now hopefully we're not too divorced from the agricultural world to be unable to understand this simple illustration, whatever this, this simple principle. Whatever you sow, that's what you're gonna reap. If you plant an apple tree, you better not be planning to make a tomato salad because you're not gonna get it. An apple tree is gonna give you apples. One of the pr principles many of you parents are involved in teaching is, if you don't do your homework, you will not get an A. That's not, way, uh, that's not the way that works. The way to a C, a D, or an F is to not do your homework. The way to an A or a B, it's a miracle, it's a mystery, how does it happen? You do your homework, and there it happens, like some cosmic reality dawning on your soul. Whatever you sow, that's what you're gonna reap. If you don't go to work, no paychecky. If you do not, if you do not, if you don't do the work, you don't reap. Paul is just operating on the most basic of principles that the world runs by, and he's telling us that this reality that if you do not work, you do not, or sorry, if you do not sow, you do not reap, is just as applicable in matters of eternity. Is just as eternal in our eternal destiny. And what he does now is he tells us that we have a choice as to where we will sow and what we will reap. And he tells us that we can go in one of two ways, that we can have, as you were, as you will, if you will, two ways to live. You can sow 
to the flesh and reap corruption, or you can sow to the spirit and reap eternal life. Do you see that there in the passage? He says in verse eight, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, and the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Now the flesh is the Apostle Paul's way of describing the root and the source of all of our sinful desires. The flesh is a spiritual principle of evil, this desire for evil that's operative in our bodies. The flesh is what desires lust instead of love, self-love instead of sacrificial love, self-justification, self-righteousness, anger, malice, bitterness, instead of love and forgiveness and peace. The flesh yearns for and longs for all that is contrary to the Spirit of God. Now, many people, when you start talking about the flesh, they're in a complete mystery. It's like you're talking about something that could never be understood. So you'll hear people say, I don't know if I'm walking in the Spirit or if I'm walking in the flesh. It's a great, it's a great mystery. But this was not a mystery to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul spoke of this in the plainest language. He spoke like this. He says in Galatians chapter five, verse 16, but I say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For those are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What is the work of the flesh? Anything that counters your desire to follow Jesus Christ is a work of the flesh. And the desires of the flesh are not a mystery, but they produce evident and obvious evil deeds. All kinds of sexual immorality kind of strife that emerges between friends or spouses or siblings, the enmity, the fits of wrath. There's no way to have a fit of wrath in the Holy Spirit. There's no way to take part in an orgy in the Holy Spirit. All of these are works of the flesh. And the works of the flesh are apple seeds sown by our souls that will reap a particular kind of fruit. And the kind of fruit we're told the flesh will reap is corruption. And you will see that corruption in your daily life. The Bible tells us the way of the transgressor is hard. When you walk by the flesh, when you sow to the flesh, when you 
fill your life with sexual immorality or lust or greed or anger, selfishness, self-righteousness, self-justification. It will create dissensions, fights, factions, all kinds of evil. And the way of the transgressor is hard, or as the old catechism put it, puts it, sin brings misery. But when the Apostle Paul speaks about sowing to the flesh and it bringing corruption, he's actually not primarily thinking about the effects on your day-to-day life. He's not primarily thinking about how if you sow to the flesh, it will make your life hard now. He's thinking about the eternal consequences, about the eternal consequences that will come into your life if you sow to the flesh. And you can see that when you see the parallel statements. Watch them. He says there in Galatians chapter 6, he says these words, the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So the corruption we're talking about is the opposite of eternal life. Do you see that? If you sow to the flesh, you will from the flesh reap corruption. What kind? Well, it's this kind. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So the corruption that the Apostle Paul is talking about primarily is the kind of corruption the Bible speaks about regularly in terms of condemnation and hell and destruction. It was the Lord Jesus who said in John 5, verse 28 through 29, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life, eternal life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The resurrection of judgment will raise a man up to weeping, to the gnashing of teeth, to a death where decomposition never ends. Mark 9, 48, the Lord Jesus again described this as where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This is the reality, beloved, is obvious to God as your kids' folly in not doing their homework is to you. If you sow to the flesh, you will from the flesh reap corruption. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. If we reap to the flesh, we will inherit an eternity of corruption. On the other hand, if we sow to the Spirit, that is, if you take those internal impulses that the Spirit of God produces in the child of God, those desires to do good, what the Old Testament calls the law of God written on the heart, if you follow the desires of the Spirit that say, oh, you want to be bitter right now, but you should forgive. Oh, you'd love to just 
huddle up in your whatever cave and serve you for now, forever. But you pour out your life for others. If you sow to the Spirit, you will, from the Spirit, reap eternal life. The, the reward, the glorious reward of following the impulses and desires of the Holy Spirit is that a literal life eternal wells up in your soul all the way. Death can't take it down. You will receive eternal life. That's the way Paul is motivating these Galatians. He's saying to them, listen, there is an eternal principle. You reap what you sow. If you reap to the flesh, you will reap corruption. If you reap, if you sow to the spirit, you will reap life everlasting, life with Jesus, life with God, life that never ends, life of peace, life free of all rancor, right? free of all division. The way of the righteous in heaven will be easy. The way of the righteous will not bring misery, but joy. That's the motivation. Now, I gotta be honest with you. I don't find that particularly motivating by itself. I don't think it's because of a personal defect in me, though there are many. I think it's because those words, divorced from the rest of Galatians, do not give you the full story. How should you be motivated? Well, you should sow to the flesh and not to the spirit. You should sow to the spirit. If you sow to the spirit, you're going to have eternal life. So get busy doing it, Emmanuel. Right over there in the fellowship hall, there's all kinds of ways to earn your way to heaven. If you sow enough to the spirit, you're on your way there. Let's do it. What a tragedy that would be. I remember early in my ministry, preaching a great deal on care for the poor and need to serve others, all good stuff. But I wore more than one person out in the process. One of them was my lovely wife. And then some of you there were there and we, we, we kind of recalibrated for a season and went through Galatians many moons ago. And uh, we saw that in Galatians, and we'll see this in just a moment, that before you get to any sowing and reaping, there's a gospel that says you are utterly condemned by your works and justified completely by his works and can be received completely into heaven without any works of your own. And we preached Galatians for months and months and months and it was just such an encouraging season in the life of the church. And I came to a season a few months after that and I, I went to my wife on a Saturday night and I said, hey, I'm gonna be preaching on like care for the poor. Kind of wanted to get you ready. Uh, for that, and I, you know, I thought she was gonna not have a great reaction uh, to that. Not that my wife doesn't want to care for the poor, but just you know how these things can be. And uh, and and she said, "Oh, that'll be great." I said, "Great? Why? Why do you think? Why do you think it's gonna be great?" She goes, "Because we understand Galatians now. Because if you understand the central message of Galatians first, the idea of sowing and reaping isn't a burden." but an incredible gospel joy. So we're still on so then, and let's get the bigger, let's get the bigger context. The message of Galatians is this, 
that every single Christian is utterly free from the condemning rigor of the law. Every single Christian is completely and totally free from the condemning rigor of the law that says you must do this to live. Every single Christian is utterly free from the expectations of the law that you must give to God a perfect obedience in order to have from God a glorious life. This is everywhere in the book of Galatians, and I'll just kind of survey you through it. You can look up the verses later, but the first one, one of those glorious ones, Galatians 3.10, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. God has a law. God has given us a law that all hangs on. You love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor and yourself. And it, it came to Israel specifically fleshed out for this one nation, and it made it very clear that what was expected was perfect and complete and total obedience. And there was nothing wrong with this law. Everything it demanded you do was good and righteous and holy. It was a perfect law. The problem was not with the law. It was the problem was with everyone who ever attempted to do it. And the problem with everyone who attempted to do it is that nobody ever did it perfectly. And make no mistake, the law doesn't flinch. The law says this, cursed be everyone who does not do all things written in the book of the law. The law is unflinching, the law is unrelenting, it expects absolute perfect obedience the first time and every time in all of our lives, and if we have not done it, it brings judgment and condemnation. The uh, folks in Galatia were kind of getting fed a gateway drug. <clears throat> The false teachers in Galatia were coming along going, hey, we should get circumcised. The Old Testament law talks about that. We should celebrate the Jewish holidays. You know, here's these people in this new religion. Well, that would be deep and rich and really enriching to celebrate all the Jewish holidays. That sounds like such a good... But Paul knew that these Judaizers were selling a gateway drug and the Galatians had no idea where this thing was going to lead. And he says, look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You'll actually destroy the work of Christ if you obey this ceremonial call in the law to be circumcised. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. He's like, you don't know what you're signing up for. These guys, you gotta remember, the false teachers in the Bible, most of the false teachers in the Bible always offered the people of God more Bible. We've gotta be clear about that. The false teachers in the scriptures were not generally saying, hey, you should have less Bible. Let's compromise here, let's compromise there. No, 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 they were offering more Bible, but without the emphasis where the Bible places it. And without the thrust where the Bible places it. 
And so here were the Galatians going, oh, that sounds good. The Old Testament Jews were circumcised. Let's get circumcised. The Old Testament Jews had Passovers and Sabbaths. Let's do it. Let's get all in. And what Paul says is, if you sign up for part of it, you got to keep all of it. And the facts is, the facts are that if you do not do every single thing that it commanded every time, the first time, completely, then you will be condemned. You will reap what you sow, and it will not be good. And then what Paul says in the book of Galatians over and over and over again is Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The message of the Bible is you must do this. You must obey this. God has given a law. You must obey this law. But the reality of humanity is we haven't. And the good news of God is he sent his son to do what we had never accomplished and to take the curse we could never bear. He took the eternal weight and wrath of God on himself on the cross. He became a curse for us so that we would not have to take a curse at all. We would be utterly free from the curse. Galatians chapter four. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law. Why? So that he could obey it. He was born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. In the words of Michael Horton, we are hardwired for law. We love that law. We like to fail in it and then sign up again and get ourselves on any track that'll, that'll give us some way to clawing ourselves towards a self-righteousness and a self-indication and then something that'll show that we're a little better than the next guy and we're certainly good enough for God. And the real law says give up on that dream. Give up on that nightmare. Give up on that reality. You are only condemned by what the law teaches. It utterly exposes you, destroys you, condemns you. You will never live up to it. And when you start to get that, you're right on the precipice of eternal joy. Because God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born in the fullness of time, to take all the curse away, all the forgiveness away, and actually to justify you, that is to declare you righteous without any single righteous word, work of your own at all. And if you would dare to contribute one good work to this salvation, you will ruin the whole thing. Because it's Christ and Christ alone. Every single opportunity for ministry, if conceived wrongly, is an enemy of the gospel. The gospel comes and it says it's all done. It's completely done. God is completely satisfied. You have been completely justified. The curse is completely removed. You are a child. You're not becoming a child. You are a child. You are adopted. The spirit cries out in your spirit, 
Abba, Father. And only then, when that's as clear as day, are you ready to hear Paul say, now make sure there's some works that go with your faith. Only then, once that's completely clear, are you able to hear Paul say, don't you be fooling with God, thinking you can believe that gospel and not be changed. The gospel will change you, but it doesn't change you by being less gospel. It doesn't change you by going, you are completely free from the law, you are completely justified, you are completely free from the curse. And now if you could just add a few things here in kind of a Christian-y way, that'll make it all real secure for you. That's not the way the law, that's not the way the gospel comes. The gospel comes and it speaks in this way, more of Paul. He says this, he says, for freedom, freedom from that law, Christ has set us free, past tense, has set us free. The old hymn writer, free from the law, oh happy condition. Jesus has died and there is remission. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Don't let anybody tell you there's anything to add. Stand firm. They came along and they said, Titus needs to be circumcised. Paul said, get out of Dodge. I'll never do it in a million years so that I won't mess with the gospel. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a a yoke of slavery. And then he says this, and here's how you get to good works from the gospel. You don't get there by saying, Christ did a lot, and if you can do a little, we can get this thing done. That's not how this works. It's Jesus paid it all. And when you see that Jesus paid it all, well, in the words of A.W. Tozer, it makes those happy love slaves of Jesus Christ. It makes people who want to serve him, not to earn a salvation, but because they're in awe of a salvation already earned. Galatians 5.13, for you were called to freedom. Read it in context. We're not talking about American freedom. We're not talking about freedom for sin. We're talking about freedom from the law. For you were called the freedom brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. So there's a way in which you stand in freedom. I need to add nothing in order to be saved. And I have been freed now to love. Not to add anything to my salvation, but because I've truly been saved. Now, with all that in mind, the fact that we are freed from the law, we are perfectly justified, we are already sons, we have the spirit, well, now you need to recognize that if you go on reaping to the flesh, you've deceived yourself. If you just go on living a life on godliness, well, the whole gospel's not been received. Because when you receive this gospel, it creates a desire to be like the one who is the gospel. Not to justify yourself, but to glorify and honor the one who's who's justified you. And so it's in that context, and only in that context, that the apostle Paul will say, so then, so then, in light of the fact that we have the Spirit, which the unbeliever doesn't even have, so then, since we've been made children of God, which we certainly didn't become by our works, so then, so then, let us do good to everyone, not adding a shred to our salvation, 
and especially to those who are of the household of faith. I, I do find that more motivating. I think that's more motivating. Isn't it unbelievable that the greatest force for creating good works is the announcement that you need to do no good works to be saved. That's the wisdom of God. Or let me even say it just slightly differently. The greatest motivation for creating good works in you and I is the announcement that Christ has done every good work needed for us to be saved. Now this brings me to the wisdom we need to live a life of good works. There's so much wisdom in this little phrase, as we have opportunity. As we have opportunity. Let us do good to everyone as we have opportunity. Many moons ago, my brother said to me something very wise. He said, Ryan, you need to be clear about this. Not all men are created equal. Now he was not saying some are more worthy of life than others. And he was not saying some men are more worthy of salvation than others. He was just pointing out the fact that if we're honest for all of 10 seconds, we will all see, and that's that we're not all the same. And a lot of us, uh, some of us have more intelligence, strength, gifts, resources, money, position in life, and some of us have less intelligence, strength, gifts, resources, money, all of the above. Now I say all this because what happens when you start talking to Christians about good works is what they usually do is they, they find, say, like the top three or four guys in all of church history, ever. <laughs> like the guys who are like beyond the hall of fame. Okay, the, the people they would name the Hall of Fame after. <laughs> and they say, that's the standard, and everything else is horrid failure. I think I'm gonna go back to bed now, forever. <laughs> but the reality is, most of us don't have the brains of Augustine, the three-hour prayer life of Luther, uh, we do not have uh, the money of someone who's got their name on every building in town. We all have different opportunities. And if you're always measuring yourself up against the guy with more opportunities than you, you're always depressed and feeling like a failure to God. But notice here that we're to do good and it's a very understanding God who's commanding it. It's a God who in the Psalms would say, is mindful that we're dust. And he says, as you have opportunity. And so here's the facts. Not everyone has the same opportunity. Some of us will give away a million dollars in our lifetime and others of us will never have that experience. Some of us, we'll lead an academic institution because we got brains coming out of our ears. And others of us will not even attend that academic institution. 
Others of us, some of us will care for nursing, nurse a grandmother till their dying day. Others will develop a trade that can be used to serve others. We have different opportunities. We will do many things God gives us the opportunity to do, but we cannot do what we do not have the opportunity to do, and we aren't even expected to. This principle comes from Paul. Well, let me give you a principle and a parable. Let me give you quickly a principle and a parable. Principle comes from 2 Corinthians 8, 12, where Paul is talking about giving. And he says, if the readiness is there, the readiness to give, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what a person does not have. So if you're ready to give, and you dig into your pocket, there's two big fat quarters, acceptable. God did not look at the widow who gave her two copper coins and said, you know, I've got bigger donors out there. He didn't have a special meal for the bigger donors. He loved and cherished the gift of the widow with the two mites. The mother of four children has the opportunity to go do good to those children, but less opportunity to do good outside her home. The empty nester couple may be able to go up multiple times a week. We have different opportunities. Now let me give you this to you in a parable really quickly. Uh, our women's ministry director, Patty Withers, pointed this one out to me. Uh, just a reminder of the parable of the talents. And talents, unfortunately, doesn't mean the thing we usually mean it by, like, oh, he's really talented. Talented was an, a talent was an economic unit. And a talent was about 20 years wages for a worker. So one talent, if you take a kind of a conservative estimate of what a, a worker in a construction job is making, a talent's worth about half a million bucks. So one talent, half a million. Two talents would be two million. And then, of course, uh, five talents would be I lost my, oh, I lost, so, sorry, one million, half a million, one million. That's not my talent, that's the problem. Okay, you see that? Thank you. One talent, half a million. Two talents, one million. Two talents, 2.5, five talents, oh my word. <laughs> so I'm gonna write, to, when I, whenever, if I ever re-preach this sermon, it's gonna say right here in the notes, do not go off script here. <laughs> well, here's the point. The first guy, the one with half a million dollars, basically put it in the bank and made nothing off of it. And Jesus actually sentenced him to hell. He sent him to the utter darkness. The other guys who have those other amounts of money, which we won't get into this time, <laughs> both doubled their investment. The one with two talents made four. The one with five talents made 10. But here's what's so interesting. They're both given the exact, exact word-for-word -word commendation. 
to the one who turned four talents, two talents into four, Jesus said, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who turned five into 10, Jesus said, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now you've gotta understand this. You might have a little money, you might have a lot. You might have a little bit of brains, you might have a lot. You might have no kids, you might have too many kids. You might have, no you don't have too many kids, but, but it feels like too many kids. You may have a spouse, you may want a spouse. You may, you may have been positioned by birth or chance, just positioned for influence. Others of you in the sovereignty of God have been positioned for insignificance. You've been given a thoroughly forgettable place in the universe. And God plans to commend you equally to the one with greater opportunities if you will just use the opportunity you have to advance his kingdom. So we are to give as we have opportunity. Now one little negative word before I move on. It's great to limit yourself by the providence of God. Hey, I can only work so much. I got to rest. I got so many brains. I got so much money. I get so many opportunities. At the same time, we need to make sure that what's limiting our opportunities is really the providence of God and not our sin. Because the reason some people don't have opportunity is because they're too busy binge watching Netflix or YouTube. Some are too busy because they're caring for an aging mother, that's good. Some are too busy because their phones are constantly scrolling through TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, you name it. Some are too busy because they're hardworking and industrious. Others are too busy because they're lazy and self-centered. And to you, I would say, you must repent. And you get to repent. You get to be involved in the advancement of a great kingdom, serving a great king. And to some of you, I just want to say this, and this is probably an old guy or an older guy looking down at the younger generation, and probably every older guy looking at the next generation has felt this way, but it does feel like the generation coming up has a peculiarly small capacity for work. Like a part-time job is just, oh, I can't even. You actually can. And you can maybe even work two of them for a season of your life. You can actually balance the responsibilities of church and home. You can do both. Not everything, and not bringing everything I just said a minute ago. But, but the facts are that if you're finding you can't do what ordinary adults around you are doing, you probably need to seek an ordinary adult and ask them to disciple you and encourage you we, you have generally more capacity than you would imagine. There's, there's exceptions with sickness and limitations, absolutely. But don't give yourself that exception too quick. Okay, last point. Last point. We've got motivation from the gospel. We've got wisdom 
from as you have opportunity, and now we get scope, priorities. Where should we be putting our time and energy in doing these good works? And I love that the Apostle Paul makes it broad and makes it narrow. We should do good works to all men, to all men. Anyone who's a child of Adam and Eve, everyone who's part of the human family. Yes, I believe that only Christians are true daughters and sons of God, but we, before we're Christians, are just part of the human race, the human family. And we share the concerns of our neighbors, and we should want their well-being. We should want their flourishing. Ultimately, we want them to be saved, but, but we also want to do good in any capacity we can to improve the life of anyone to whatever degree we can. One of my favorite books, you've heard me quote it many times, Alvin Schmidt's marvelous book, How Christianity Changed the World. How Christianity Changed the World. And he writes specifically about how Christians provided the foundation for modern hospitals and society of caring. And he writes specifically about how Christian care towards the sick stood out in the ancient world. Let me share some of what I learned from him. First of all, Schmidt points out that the Roman world into which Christianity was born was often merciless to the sick. Seneca, the first century Roman philosopher, openly wrote, we drown children who at birth are weakly and abnormal. Third century bishop Dionysius said that during a plague in AD 250, the pagans, quote, thrust aside anyone who began to be sick and kept aloof even from their deepest, dearest friends and cast sufferers out upon public roads, half dead, and left them unburied and treated them with utter contempt when they die. Even modern historians record that, quote, when epidemics broke out, Romans often fled in fear and left the sick to die without care. The Christians were very different. They did good to all men. Again, Bishop Dionysius writes of the Christians' care for the sick and dying. He says, very many of our brethren, while in their exceeding love and brotherly kindness, did not spare themselves, but kept by each other and visited the sick without thought of their own peril and ministered to them assiduously and treated them for their healing in Christ, died from time to time most joyfully, drawing on themselves their neighbor's diseases. They may not have understood all we knew about germs, but they knew how this stuff went around. Drawing on themselves their neighbor's diseases and willingly taking over to their own persons the burden of suffering of those around them. Beloved, this has been the Christian impulse throughout the ages, to do good to all men at great personal cost. Wherever we see need, we should be looking and praying for opportunities to do real biblical good to the homeless on our streets, the poor in our neighborhoods, the murder and mutilation infecting our medical profession, the ineffectiveness and ungodly indoctrination in our educational systems, the corruption of our government. In all of these places, we should be looking for places and positions for opportunities to do 
good. At the tables of our ministry fair, you will find open doors to position you to be part of the great tradition of doing good. You'll find ways to serve refugees, to serve prisoners, re-entering society, to plant trees that will beautify our neighborhood. At the ministry tables, you will find opportunities to bring healthy food into our neighborhood, to translate sermons on Sunday morning from into English for those for whom English is not their first language. We should try to do good to all men. But if you've got limited capacity and you have to prioritize, your priority should be on the people of God. That's what the passage says. Especially to those who are of the household of faith. What a title. That's what your fellow Christians are. The household of faith. It can be tempting in a church this size to lose that reality. That we are family. First and foremost. We have God as our father. Christ is our older brother. And we are each other's brothers and sisters. You wouldn't believe, I'm afraid I'm going to have to skip over it, but I've got like two or three pages of this. You wouldn't believe how often the New Testament uses the family as a, a guide to how to treat your brothers and sisters in the church. But one of the ways he uses the family as a guide to how we're to treat the church is that we're to care financially and care in doing good for the church with the same zeal that the deepest kin have for each other. The way we wouldn't let our parents or our siblings fall and, and not care for them, there's to be that care for the body of Christ and to recognize that your truest and deepest family are those who share your faith, that we are the household of God. And I realize when you come here on Sunday mornings, it means it, it takes efforts to get to know those brothers and sisters and those folks over here. But that's a good work. It's the good work that precedes so many other good works of getting to know and love the people that Jesus brought into his home. One of the ways the Bible speaks about our love for the church is in the 60-ish one another commands of the New Testament. You really can't be living a faithful Christian life without being dominated by the one another commands. And as you go out into the booths and see all these different ministries and you look at opportunities at the College Collective, Emmanuel Adults, Emmanuel Youth, Emmanuel Kids, you can think these are opportunities to instruct one another, to serve one another. If you uh, volunteer to serve on our worship team, that is a direct application of Paul's words in Ephesians to sing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And boy, aren't we blessed by those who lead us in worship every single Sunday. If you were to volunteer for the singles ministry or the transportation ministry or the welcome ministry, it would be a fair application of show hospitality to one another. If you would sign up for the nursery, which every person should do, don't pray about that one, just sign up for that one. 
it would be an opportunity to have equal concern for one another. To think about those who miss services because they have little ones and think, I'll miss a service. So the ones with little ones, don't miss a service. You could sign up for the medical team as a way, if you have medical training. Otherwise, we thank you for your service and ask you to choose something else. Um, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know, I was thinking, we were talking to our kids recently, and we were talking about what, what is adulthood? What does it mean to be an adult child as opposed to a younger child. And, and one of the things we were talking about is we just started talking about the fact that when a mature adult comes into the home, you don't need to ask them for help. When our friends come over, you know, if, if there's some dishes there after supper, they just jump up and start putting them in the dishwasher, asking how they can help. Adults notice needs and move to meet them before anyone tells them to. Children require that you put yourself on repeat and say again and again and again and again and again. Maybe you could do, did, did you notice that we're about to invoke pestilence near the sink here? We don't take care of this issue. Adults see a problem and by internal rather than external motivation begin to, to make the responsibility. Beloved, our goal is to be a congregation of adult children. The Bible talks about us as children, but we shouldn't be thinking just babies. We want to be a church of adult children that doesn't walk around going, there's a big need there. I wonder who's gonna get that. Leaving lights on and doors open everywhere. But rather we wanna be adult children who motivated by the gospel take every opportunity to do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us grace to be children motivated by the gospel, full of good works, displaying your glory, making friends, discipling our kids, in the process of serving your church and serving the world. Pray that you would do this in Jesus' name.